Well, friends, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be going through verses 8 through 17 here in the book of 1 Peter. So let me read these verses out. Hear God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we do come now to your word, I pray that you would help me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of of my mind be pleasing to you and help us to understand your word rightly here this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Francis Schaeffer was a pastor and theologian of the 20th century. And he was known often for having a compassionate heart towards others. And even often a prophetic voice that spoke very clearly the gospel to many. And I was reminded of some words that that he wrote years ago. Let me read these words as they're very relevant to our text today. He says... In an age of relativity, the practice of truth, when it is costly, is the only way to cause the world to take seriously our protestations concerning truth or our proclamations concerning truth. The practice of truth, when it is costly, is the only way for the world to want to start to hear the proclamation of the truth that we proclaim with our mouth. Well, these are strong words from the 1960s that that do carry the same level of conviction for us today in our cultural moment. We find ourselves in a moment when the voice of the church speaking the gospel is in danger of being dismissed because of the neglect of the church to live out that truth in its daily life. We want the church to have a, a voice proclaiming the gospel But we have to ask ourselves, is there a visible witness from the church that's actually commending the gospel and providing opportunity for the church to proclaim it in the world? It is true, many will find the message of Jesus to be a stumbling block in and of itself. And as a result, many are going to want to silence the Christian voice. But the problem is, is that when there is a neglect of righteous living, practicing the truth in the world, that that in fact actually becomes the stumbling block for many 
And then they want to silence the Christian voice. It becomes a wrong stumbling block for the world. Well, Schaefer's quote also highlights another reality for the Christian. There's a cost to following Jesus. You see, when the church does embrace this call to live righteously and to practice truth in the world, there is often a cost of suffering. And in the face of that cost, there is a temptation to fear and a temptation to retreat. So not only is is the world around us wanting to silence the Christian voice, there's also a temptation for the church itself to silence itself out of fear of the suffering that the church may face. Well, this does raise a tension for us. And it actually is a false dichotomy that we experience and that we hear in the Christian culture around us. This false dichotomy of defending the gospel and wanting to proclaim the gospel is often pit against the display of the gospel and righteous living in the world. Christians often feel this pressure to choose between the two. And often in our own circles, the emphasis in the conversation lies within the proclamation of the gospel, which we should rightly uphold. But there can be an unintended consequence of a minimization of the the display of the gospel in the righteous living of God's people. Let me explain. For for example, in our text, 1 Peter chapter 3, one of the most well-known verses here in verse 15 is this call to defend the gospel by giving a reason for the hope that we have. And as we'll see, that is something that is very relevant for us, that we need to hold on to, this defense and proclamation of the gospel. But often, this verse is actually dislodged from the emphasis and the flow of what Peter is trying to say here in this message. Look with me at verse 24 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter. He's setting Jesus Christ up as this perfect example of walking down the path of suffering. And what he says in verse 24 is that he bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter says that Christ deals with our sins in order that the church may live to righteousness. So what is Peter doing as we enter into our passage coming back into chapter 3? Well, in verses 8 to 12, what Peter is is putting on display is actually a life of righteousness. Verse 11 tells us that the Lord is seeing the righteous. In verses 13 to 17, Peter is describing the consequences of a life of righteousness, suffering. And then in verse 18, he puts again Jesus on display as the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous. What Peter is doing is he exhorting the church to live a life of righteousness in the world. And so this well-known verse, verse 15, to declare the hope of the gospel is actually surrounded by a context in which Peter is calling the church to live righteously in the world. I think one of the biggest hindrances for our own witness as a church in our community is when we dislodge and disconnect these two points of emphasis, declaring the gospel, defending the gospel with our words and the display of the gospel in our lives of righteousness. The Christian was never meant to choose between the two. And here Peter is exhorting us 
that we do have a real hope to declare to the world. His aim though for us is this, is that by embracing righteous living in a hostile world, it will actually receive blessing from God, but it will bring opportunity to bear witness to God in the world. We were never meant to separate these two realities, but to embrace righteous living so that we might receive blessing from God and have opportunity to bear witness to the hope that we have. So our first point here in verses eight to 12, what we're gonna think about for a few minutes is Peter's exhortation for the church, for us, college church, to embrace the call to live righteously in the world. He says in verse nine, he says, to this you have been called. This way of life that he's going to describe, righteous living in the world. Let's look at verse eight as we dive in. Well, he starts by saying, finally, all of you, all of you. Let me just, let me just pause here for a moment because it's easy when we come to passages like this that we run to this individual personal response Certainly there is a a personal nature and a personal reality to our witness and to our living. But Peter is calling the church collectively. He's calling us college church, all of us together because we have a communal hope, a communal mission and a communal witness that the world needs to see. Together, we are to hear this exhortation. So what he says here, for this communal witness is that the the community is to be marked by brotherly love. So if we're to embrace our call as God's people, God's family, that, that we are to be marked by the characteristics of brotherly love that are described in verse eight. And right in the middle, that's that's the word that he gives that everything else kind of hinges upon. And so what does this brotherly love look like? Well, the first and the last phrases there talk about the mind, that the church is to have a unity of mind and a humility of mind together. The nature of humanity, the nature of our own hearts is to divide and to make distinctions. But that is not to be the reality of God's people. The church family is to be different, to think differently. We must have the same mind, namely the mind of Christ in which we are putting the needs of others above ourselves, that we are putting on the forefront of our mind the mission of Jesus Christ. Can College Church be a place with the differences of our political stances when the difference of socioeconomic status Differences of race, differences of family background, differences of preferences. That with those differences that we can remain in unity together, unity of mind and humility, putting the needs and preferences of one another above our own for the sake of the mission of Jesus. We're called to unity and humility of mind. But it's not just our mind. Peter moves in the second and and the fourth markers here of brotherly love to the heart and to the affections. He talks about sympathy and tender heart because there's, there's a lot of difficulty that we all face. There's trials in our experience. There's loss in life. There's sin that we all wrestle with. And so here he's calling the church 
to have sympathy. The sense of, of sympathy is that you can enter into the certain experience of another. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We bring comfort where there's comfort needed. The tender heart is this compassion that as those are suffering, those who are in sin, those are, are grieving loss, is that we can bring comfort to them with a tender heart. All of this is describing this reality of the brotherly love that God's people are to have. Why this word on brotherly love in a letter that's so full of words on enduring suffering and enduring this, this cost that, that, that we face? Well, brotherly love in the midst of the hostility that we face actually serves as a witness to the world in a very strong, real way. Well, the church is always in progress, as are we at College Church. It often fails at living this out, but we're to strive forward in unity together to live out our brotherly love. And in doing so, it will serve as a witness to the world. But there's also this reality that that as we're facing the hostility around us, that the brotherly love that we demonstrate to one another serves as a source of strength and sustenance That as we care for each other, as we're beaten down by the heavy weight of the things that we're experiencing from others, is that we're actually strengthened to enter back in in confidence and vigor into the environments that we find ourselves in. So to embrace the call, there is this call to brotherly love with one another. But he moves on. He talks about blessing others in verse 9. Well, the name of the game in our culture, in our day and age is that when we are insulted, it is retaliation is the name of the game. That is natural to us, is that we want to defend ourselves. And Peter is saying that that hardship is going to come. Insults are going to come. Suffering is going to come. Reviling is going to come. And the distinctly Christian response and witness is to bless those who persecute us. Peter knows very well the words of Jesus where Jesus called his disciples to love those who hate you, to bless those and pray for those who persecute you. Not only the teaching of Jesus, but Peter has already described the life of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he was threatened, he did not respond, but he entrusted himself to his father in heaven who judges justly. And so here, Peter calls the church of Christ to follow in the path that Jesus has laid down, to not retaliate, but instead to bless others. To bless others. And and really what that means is that when we are faced with the hostility to bless others, part and integral to that reality is actually praying for them. We pray that God would be gracious to them, that God would do eternal good to them, not retaliating, but actually seeking their good. He starts to define that a little bit more in verses 10 and 11 as he quotes Psalm 34. He talks about the life of the righteous where they actually use their lips not to speak deceit but use their words to speak truth and to speak grace into those around them. Not not doing evil but turning from evil and seeking to do good even to those who are seeking to cause harm is desiring their flourishing. Seeking peace, pursuing peace. What a word we need today. 
is that we're often in discord with so many people saying things on social media or there's so much conflict that we're fine if people just go their separate ways. But that's not the reality of the Christian life. That's not to be present in the Christian community. It's actually we're to seek peace, strive for peace, to be peacemakers. This is the call to righteous living. Brotherly love, a call to righteous living, to bless others, even those who persecute us. I was reading this this week from commentator Karen Jobes and she reminded uh, me of this this picture of a a soldier who was often uh, insulted and ostracized as a Christian who daily read his Bible, who was praying uh, in the hall there with all the other soldiers and there was a particular soldier who was very hostile to him And, and one evening this hostile soldier took his muddy boots and and threw them at this soldier. But this hostile soldier, the next day, he found at the foot of his bed, these shoes that were cleaned and that were polished and were ready for inspection. And as a result of, of this response of wanting to bless those who were trying to seek his own harm, Many in his, own, in his own troop there came to know the Lord Jesus through the witness of this soldier. What a beautiful reality. What a distinct witness it is to bless those who persecute you and cause you harm. Well, we find more motivation through the illustration of Psalm 34 that actually we have in our text in verses 10 through 12. You see, this, this quote is actually given by David in Psalm 34, it comes at a time in his life when when he's under duress, he's under hostility and affliction in his own life as he's in a wilderness, as he's in exile. And so here he speaks these words of God's deliverance for his people, those who are afflicted at the hands of others. But in David's life, he was delivered from a king in 1 Samuel 21, but he's on the run from Saul. Saul is seeking to destroy him, to to kill him. And David finds opportunity in the wilderness actually to repay Saul for all of his doings, to actually take Saul's life. But instead of retaliating to Saul, David spares him not once, but twice. And Saul finds out about it. And Saul says these words to David. He says, you are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Psalm 34, they they come from the lips of one who faced affliction, did not respond in retaliation, but actually sought to bless those who were coming at him and actually was receiving blessing from God. You see, this psalm and these words are to stir up in God's people a a confidence to continue on in this way of life, even as they face reviling and even as they face insulting. Well, what does he say as well in verse nine? Peter, as he uses David's words, is he says with these comforting words of promise that God's people, as they respond this way, they will obtain a blessing. Verses 11 and 12 reiterate that, is that God's eyes are towards the righteous. God's ear is open to their prayer. 
Well, to be clear, P- Peter's not setting up some new way of salvation where, where we're saved because of our righteous works and our righteous living. Pastor Juan Sanchez, he says this. He says, Peter calls us to live in a way that gives evidence that we are who we say we are because God will reward those whose lives proved faithful. You see, Peter has already laid down a foundation that we've been born again to a living hope. Through the blood of Jesus, as we believe in his work on the cross, we're brought into God's family. But as those who have been brought in to God's family, we strive forward to pursue righteousness, knowing that we have an eternal inheritance for those who are in God's family, following him, striving to live a life of righteousness. But it's not just a future reality that that we're longing for, that we're waiting for. There's this present reality of God's blessing that God's people can experience and can know even now as we wait for that day. His eyes are on you. He hears your prayers. As you're facing hostility and you're facing difficulty, the Lord knows you. The Lord is for you. These are comforting words from David, comforting words from Peter to the church, comforting words for us today as we think about embracing this call to righteous living. As we cry out to God, he will hear our prayers. And we have the promise of this great blessing of the eternal inheritance that we will one day experience and know. So Peter calls the church He calls us to to embrace this call of righteous living in the world. Brotherly love, blessing others. And he even says in verse 13, he says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Nothing's gonna separate God's people from his love and from from his promises. But Peter does not dismiss the reality that God's people often face in the world. You see, there's a cost There's a cost when God's people embrace this call. And the cost is suffering and ongoing suffering. And it often comes to God's people in the form of hostility and insults and pressure. So we face this cost. What's gonna help God's people to continue on as that is put on the plate of the church? Well, Peter gives the encouragement that we need here in verses 13 through 17. Look there with me. In verse 14, Peter even says, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Again, he's reiterating this this eternal inheritance that that awaits God's people who are living for Jesus. But again, it's not just something that is purely in the future. It is something that we can taste and experience now as God's people. Peter goes on later in chapter four, verse 14, to say these words that that those who are insulted for the name of Christ are blessed because the spirit of God rests upon them. You see, brothers and sisters, if we have the spirit of God in us, God dwells with us. We belong to him and we can taste now the blessing of his presence, which we will fully and finally experience on that day. You see, how do we face the cost of suffering? Well, we remember God's promise that he gave us and he is faithful to his promises. But he moves on. 
He moves on in verses 14 and 15. What's gonna help us to face the cost of suffering? Well, fear Christ. We fear Christ because the temptation for all of God's people, all of us in the face of suffering is to fear. And here, Peter directs our attention to reorient our fears. You see, the Christian is never meant to be fearless in the face of hostility. The Christian is to reorient their fears around Jesus Christ. Peter quotes here in these words from Isaiah chapter eight. In Isaiah chapter eight, God's people, they were under great pressure. There was threat of external invasion and they were filled with fear. And the temptation for them was to trade their allegiance to God and their trust of God to give their allegiance to other nations and seek protection from them. And God's word to them in Isaiah eight was don't fear man, but fear God who can truly provide the protection and the deliverance that you need. Honor God and fear God. And so Peter grabs a hold of these words from Isaiah eight and he, and he offers them an application to the church and even to us. And in this great affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ, these words in Isaiah eight, they say, fear God. Here he says, fear Christ, honor Christ, the Lord, the God, man, fully God, fully man. He says, set Jesus apart in your hearts, which means place him as the highest priority. Give your allegiance to him. He is the highest authority in all of life. And so we fear Jesus. We don't fear man. I wonder what the fears you're facing here today are. As, as, you, as you live for Jesus, are you fearing the insults that are coming your way or have come your way? As you're living for Jesus in the world, do you fear being ostracized or marginalized because of what you are doing and how you are living? Maybe you fear something at your job. I know some of you feel the weight in your own families, the weight in your own vocations because you're striving to live for Jesus in righteousness and you're faced with fear. Well, here's this word to call us to evaluate in our own hearts is ultimately what do we fear? Do we fear man or do we fear Jesus? Let's put this into perspective. Look down at verse 22 with me. In verse 22 describes Jesus, Peter does, as in heaven on his throne at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here we have Jesus over all things, ruling and reigning over the world, all powers subjected to him. As we have that look, I wonder if we zoomed in and had a look upon your own heart. Is this Jesus, this king, Is he ruling and reigning over your heart? Is your own heart subjected to him in faith and in trust? That he is the highest allegiance, that you are honoring him above all, that there is nothing more worthy of praise than Jesus Christ. Peter is exhorting us not to be fearless, but to reorient our fear and fear Jesus not out of fear of being cast out of his family, but revering him, honoring him, loving him, 
placing our allegiance to him and to him alone. Well, what's going to keep us going as we face fear? We remember God's promises, that he's faithful to his promises. We reorient our fear to fear the one who is truly worthy and we honor him in our hearts. And as we do so, we're actually strengthened and propelled to actually face the suffering that we experience in our own life because we're freed from the fear of man and we're now actually freed to continue to live righteously in the world. But Peter also describes for us, moving into verses 15 through 17, as we reorient our fear to honor Christ above all things and we're continuing to live righteously, we're actually going to find opportunity to proclaim and speak about Jesus. Because remember, righteous living in the world, it, it, it receives God's blessing. But it also provides an opportunity to bear witness to the hope that we have. And we are to be ready to declare that hope, to be ready to defend that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Peter is calling us to be ready. You see, when Christians have a a radical, genuine love for one another, it will be different in the world. And when Christians don't retaliate but bless others, it will be different from the world. When Christians fear Jesus, not fearing man, but continue on in the midst of suffering, it will provide opportunity to tell others why. I wonder, College Church, are are people asking us as a church why we live the way that we live? And I wonder, College Church, if we are ready when we are asked to actually give an offer of hope a defense of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I think we need to allow Peter here in this passage to reorient how we start to think about evangelism and outreach. I'm not sure that that we always give the weight that Peter intends for us to give to the way in which we are called to live in the world. And by doing so, how that provides many opportunities to declare and speak hope. But Peter does really laser in on on what we are to be proclaiming to the world. Often our voice can be filled with contention. Often our voice can be filled with distinction. But here we have a message that Peter is calling us to have a message of hope to offer to the world. And you may be listening here, you may be watching here, and you're wondering about this hope of Jesus Christ. Well, we gather here every single week to remind one another of this hope. It's the hope of Jesus that brings about the forgiveness of sins. It's the hope of Jesus that brings joy in this life. It's the hope of Jesus that gives us transformation and power to live for him. It's the hope of Jesus that we have for all eternity that we're gonna be in his presence. That all the things that we face in this world is that there is a secure hope for eternity because Jesus died and he rose again, victorious over sin, victorious over death. And he reigns as the king and he offers hope to all who would come and believe. So the question for all of us that we need to hear is, are you ready? Are you ready, one, maybe one of you, are you ready to receive this hope? 
Are you ready to believe in Jesus? Because he stands to offer you this blessing of being a part of his family. But for many of us who know this hope, are you ready to offer this hope to others and to speak it to others in their lives? Well, Peter says that this way of living, it's better to suffer if that should be God's will than for doing evil. How do we continue on through this way of life? We remember God's promises. We fear Christ. We reorient our fears around him. We offer hope and trust in that hope ourselves. And we know that it is ultimately under God's sovereign plan that we are living this way. Well, let me end with this reality that comes actually out of verse 18. There's a call for us to embrace righteous living. There's a cost of suffering. How we endure through that is fearing Christ and trusting in him. But ultimately, Peter's encouragement doesn't end there because in verse 18, he portrays Jesus Christ himself, the righteous one, that Jesus died for the unrighteous. He died for our sins and our unrighteousness so that we could die to sin ourselves and live to righteousness. And he rose again, victorious over sin. He's vindicated. And those who follow in this path of living righteously for Jesus have that hope and that promise that one day we too will be vindicated with him. So ultimately, the last word that we hear is we need to look to Christ, the righteous one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and your grace to us that you've brought us into your family, that you call us to embrace righteous living and you empower us to do so. And you give us all the motivation and the encouragement that we need to walk in this world and continue down this path. But we trust in your son Jesus and look to him, the righteous one. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.